Okay, I am on my way to my sister's house to record the first episode of our podcast, Beagle and Pants. Sister Anne, by the way, also known as Pants. Okay, while you do that, I'm going to start plugging things in. Testing. Testing. Okay. We're ready to get this thing started? Yes. So we should probably do an intro. Okay. My name's Becky. No, it isn't. (laughs) My name is Beagle. My name is Pants. Okay, and why are we Beagle and Pants? Why are you Pants? I don't know. I, it's a nickname that I strongly dislike, actually. You don't like it? Well, I, I've, I, you know, when I get called this name by the few people that call me it, I really like it when they say it. Yeah. Because it's only, like, two people that call me that, yeah. maybe? Three. Three people? Yeah. And they're all really, really good buddies of mine. Yeah. That's why I like that nickname, is it's like a... It's very... Where did it come from? I don't know. Well, I think one specific person started saying it. Pants! Yes. You know who you are. (laughs) Pants! And you can't not love the way that he says, Pants! Yeah. So you're Pants and... Beagle. Why am I Beagle? Rumor around town is that you got bit by a dog. (laughs) So can I tell you that I didn't... I couldn't remember if I had been called Beagle before I was bitten by the Beagle or if I got the nickname Beagle after the Beagle bit me. Clearly, I got the nickname Beagle after the Beagle bit me. But that means that my family started calling me by the animal, by the animal that bit me. That hurt you. Which I always thought, yeah, I've always been like, geez. It's <laughs> pretty hardcore. It's like, you know, it's like... What am I trying to say? Well, I don't know. It's very, it's kind of badass. Well, right. Because what if I'd been bitten by a shark? Then you would have been called shark. Yeah. And that would have There's been There's no like, question. Like, that's your mark. Right. Yeah. That's exactly. your damage. Yeah. So I was bitten by a beagle in fifth grade, winter fifth grade, Billings, Montana, <laughs> <laughs> sledding down a not very steep hill. The road outside of, uh, I can't remember if his name was Brad Bratley or <laughs> Brett Bratley. It was like Brad Bratley. His beagle chased me down oh, come the on. hill. I mean, really? While I was sledding. <laughs> chased me down the hill as I was sledding. I was kind of like, and I'm lying on my stomach. 
on the sled and I'm sort of noticing that this beagle is chasing me down the hill. I get to the bottom, he jumps on the sled and bites my leg. And I was wearing like 1980s snow pants. They are like five inches thick, right? Like big snow pants. But through that, and uh, they told me not to tell. I went home. Who's they? His parents? No, the kid, because he wasn't supposed to let the the beagle the beagle out. And uh, so I went home, and it really hurt. He broke my skin and everything. I went home and just laid on the couch, and I was just sort of like, (laughs) and dad, dad was like, "What's wrong?" I was like, "Nothing." And then I was just still sort of like whimpering and crying and like, you know, dad, he was like, it just really seems like maybe there's something wrong. <laughs> so I think the third time he asked me, I was like, I got bit by a dog. Oh my gosh. So then we had to go to the doctor and I got a tennis shot. And the next day, Brad was like, you told. And he got like in big trouble. Did you... You didn't have to get stitches or anything? I don't think so. I think it was just a tetanus shot. Yeah. And it hurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brad was mad at me. Yeah. And I got the name Beagle. So anyway, we're called, that's why we're called Beagle and Pants. And today is Wednesday, May 18th, Mm -hmm. 2016. And this is episode one. In order to give the podcast some structure. Oh, I totally forgot about this. We had had talked about... (laughs) Reviewing documentaries. Yeah. The purpose of the podcast? Yeah. You forgot. Totally. <laughs> Completely. I was like, what the heck are we going to talk about? <laughs> and and you recommended the first documentary? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, but do you remember the documentary that you yeah. recommended? Yeah. Okay, good. It's all coming back to you. Yeah. <laughs> I watched one of the documentaries with you <laughs> um, last <laughs> Friday. <laughs> Less than a week ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so you recommended. Well, you love documentaries. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? Well, I mean, not everybody. Not everyone. Yeah, I like a good documentary. I noticed that I like watch a like. Anyway, well, doesn't matter. Every time we see you, you say, "Have you seen?" fill-in-the-blank documentary. You've probably seen more documentaries than any person I know. Really? Yeah. And so you recommended this one, and it was called Finding Vivian Meyer. Yep. And it was put out in 2013. I'm just a few years late. Always. No, I, we should watch documentaries that like came out in the 70s. I know, I just don't ever, you know, for as many as I watch, I'm not on top of them coming out when they come out. Yeah. I don't know. That's all right, though. Whenever they make it to Netflix, I guess. But Vivian Meyer is absolutely fascinating. I thought that we should maybe go through a little bit of the history of her life and who she is, and then we can talk about the documentaries that we watched. Mm-hmm. Does that sound good to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Vivian Meyer uh, was born in 1926 and died in 2009. She was a nanny who was also a street photographer, uh, but she never, ever showed her work to anybody. And the only reason why she's known today is an auction house in Chicago purchased her storage locker when she wasn't paying it, paying for it anymore, like storage wars kind of thing, and uh, then sold the contents, which basically were the negatives in the pictures, 
uh, to three buyers initially got them. Although we found out in the second documentary that we watched called The Vivian Meyer Mystery that there was other stuff in those <coughs> storage units, like written papers and letters and like a bunch of stuff that they ended up throwing away. It really was primarily the photos and the negatives that they sold, which is, it just makes you wonder. We could have learned so much more about her life. Yeah. But, all right. So this is what we know about her. She was born in New York in 1926. Uh, she spent some of her childhood years in France, in the village where her mom was from. She went back to New York for a bit, and then she went back to France for a bit. And it looks like her first photos were probably taken on that second trip to France. Maybe early 20s, about mm -hmm. then. Uh, not the years, but that's how old she was. She went back to New York and was taking photos in New York. And I read that she worked in a sweatshop and also that she was a nanny in New York. Uh, but at some point, she moved to Chicago, and she was a nanny in Chicago. And while she was a nanny, she basically walked the streets of Chicago and took thousands and thousands and thousands of photos. Like, they're saying <clears throat> there's like 150,000 photos that they have. She did take one trip around the world by herself um, and took photos in Manila, Bangkok, Shanghai, Beijing, India, Syria, Egypt, and Italy. Um, and then at some point she retired from nannying and she was really poor. She didn't have any money. She actually was, I think, homeless for some time. And she was about to be evicted uh, from, uh, I think, some not very nice apartment. And the children of one of the families she worked for sort of found out and arranged uh, for her to live in a better apartment and paid for her rent. And she kept her photos and negatives at a storage facility in Chicago. And in 2007, she hadn't been paying for the space, so um, it went up for auction, and the auctioneer bought them and uh, sold them. In November 2008, she fell and hit her head, <clears throat> and she went to the hospital wasn't really getting better, transferred to a nursing home, but she died five months after the fall in April of 2009. So that's basically her life, in a nutshell. Her work, when she was alive, absolutely nothing was done with her work. She didn't show it to anybody. Well, she didn't really print very much of it, did she? Right. She just got the negatives, or she didn't even develop right. oh, there the were roles. Hundreds of undeveloped roles. Of film. Thousands. Thousands of undeveloped roles of film. I read that in the first family that she nannied for in Chicago that she did have a dark room. And so she did develop some of them oh, really? herself early on, but then she didn't have that again. She did go to some um, <clears throat> photo shops and have them develop some, but she, I mean, barely had any of them developed. Uh, so she never even saw most of the photos that she took. The mom of, the, of one of the families she worked for was a photo editor at a Chicago newspaper and knew famous photographers. Mm -hmm. Could have easily just been like, hey. She would have been so famous in her time. Yeah. If you see these photos. like She worked briefly for Phil Donahue's family. She did? Yeah. That's in the first... Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I don't think... I think it was for like a couple months, but still... That's so crazy. 
Here's a famous wow. person. We're like, hey, look at a couple of my photos. Yeah. But that just wasn't who she was. That's yeah. not what she wanted. Mm-mm. Okay. So nothing happened with her work. 2007, it went to the three buyers, John Maloof, Ron Slatery, and Randy Prow. 2008, uh, Ron Slatery, Slattery, whatever, published some of the photographs on the internet, but nothing really happened. In 2009, after her death, John Maloof posted some of the photographs on Flickr, and that's when it went viral. And since then, there have been two documentaries about her, several books of her photography have been published, and her work has been exhibited around the world. So she was alive for a couple of years after they had the photos. And they they did, I think, at least two of them did try to find, like, who's this Vivian Meyer person? But there was absolutely no information anywhere. And the first thing that they could ever find uh, on her was her obituary mm-hmm. um, after it was published. So... Uh, we watched the two documentaries, Finding Vivian Meyer. That was John Maloof, one of the buyers, put together that documentary. And the other one is The Vivian Meyer Mystery, which was a BBC documentary that came out the same year. I thought it would be interesting to talk about the two documentaries and how they were different and how, how they were as documentaries. Mm-hmm. Like when you first saw Finding Vivian Meyer, like why did you recommend that we watch this documentary and talk about it first? I mean, pretty obvious reason. I just thought it was unbelievable that this woman had... A, it was one of the best photographers I've ever seen. It was one of the most beautiful... Visually, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I love street photography. Mm -hmm. And I I just couldn't believe how amazing these photos were. Especially since they captured, like the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. in Chicago or New York. You know, I can't remember. Both. The Both. time period was fascinating. She just, I mean, you, I've never, of course I've seen photos from the 50s and 60s, but there was just something about her street photography. It was just so, I mean, just you, because she had, you know, I, could, I knew right away how close she had to have been to these people, and they're total strangers. I know she was very, very close in proximity to these strangers when she was taking their like pictures. A, at least three feet, if at not At least closer. three feet, if not closer. And I was just blown away by that. And I couldn't believe that, you know, what really grabbed me was how mysterious she was, that she was kind of weird and she had, like, she was so, like, private and maybe suffering from some sort of mental illness. Maybe not. Maybe just, I don't know, like... Mm-hmm hearing the kids talk about their nanny and like what little they knew of her and mm-hmm. I mean it's just so mysterious the whole thing is just so bizarre and why wouldn't you ever I mean all these curators or whatever you they're called people that appraise work are, right. they're like she's one of the absolutely the best photographers I've ever seen of that century right she's one of the she top would street have photographers been immensely famous right later on in life after you know it would have taken some time right but it's always like that like you look back on someone posthumously really and that's but anyway even when she was alive she would have been very recognized she wouldn't have been homeless no she wouldn't have she would have been traveling the world she would have been shooting for national geographic she would have been i mean she just life magazine all that stuff yeah, can you imagine? I bet like portraits that she would have done of famous people. Maybe. Oh yeah, I mean, but that's the whole point. Is like that's not her. That's not what she wanted. 
but why? Right. <laughs> so she's very, very weird. Even if she weren't a photographer and have these amazing photos, mm-hmm. she would be an incredibly interesting character. Yes. And I, I think I have finally gotten to the point where I actually believe that she was a real person. Because when I... Oh, really? Well, I mean, I know that she was, but... Well, like, no, I know what you mean, though. I'm like, I just don't... I can't... She, well, especially when we... Like, watching uh, Finding Vivian Meyer, she just seemed like a character. Yeah. Like, literally, a, a, just a character in, in a, a book. A movie, yeah. Or a movie. Like, like something that John Irving would write, or, or like, something in A world, world According to Garp, and just some, like, weird, you know, quirky... Uh, character but that doesn't really exist Mm -hmm. and she had a bit of a French accent Um, she told people she was born in France even though she wasn't people would ask her about her background she wouldn't tell them anything she'd get mad Mm -hmm. if people asked about her Uh, she would like jokingly say she was a spy Mm -hmm. she like she wanted to be the mystery woman when she did go and bring her uh negatives uh, to be or her rolls of film to be developed she wouldn't give her name to oh yeah that's the thing she used different names yeah like what what's going on yeah i think she was just an intensely private person and i get the sense from especially from watching the second documentary uh the vivian meyer mystery that she wasn't doing it for anything other than for herself. Right. That Which d- doesn't make sense as a photographer. Well, and I think that there probably was some mental illness. I, there probably was some sort of... But you know what I mean? Because she wasn't getting them printed so she could see them. She wasn't even seeing the photographs. Well, that's why I think there was almost like some sort of like obsessiveness maybe about it. Or well, there had to be. Right. Not OCD necessarily, but a compulsion. Like this must... I mean, to the point... Or, I mean, really some sort of joy out of just being out there and... Right. She knew she caught a moment. Right. Here's the other thing we know is that she... There would be... Well, one very important factor, and this is why she was able to get so close to people, was that the photographer... The camera was at her chest. Right. Yeah, so she would be looking down into the viewfinder. It was a roll of... Rolleflex. Mm-hmm. Which is great. Like I've never used those cameras. I would love to. Well, it's a medium for that format reason. camera, so the level of detail too. Right? Yeah, would beautiful be... detail. Yeah. So she people didn't know that she. I mean, they could see she had a camera, but they didn't necessarily know that she was taking because the camera was not up at her face where she was yeah, like looking not... right at people. It was she's looking down into the viewfinder. So she's not even looking at her subjects right. directly. So I mean, that was pretty cool. But she there were only twelve shots per roll. And she never or rarely took a, the same picture twice. Like, she didn't sit there and take... She would take a picture of someone and just move on. And then walk away. And she would nail it. I mean, I'm sure it took her years and years and years to nail her shots. Or maybe it didn't. I don't know. But she certainly developed her skill. No mm-hmm. pun intended. She just didn't... She had a wonderful eye. And the comical oh moments that God. she would, oh, she she would get. Um, it wasn't like, oh, that's a really good photo. It was like, oh my gosh, there's a woman walking... Some old woman with a hat, and she's walking by some sort of pole that had like a uh, like a hanging planter on, on it that was almost the exact same shape as this lady's hat. Uh-huh. And so she sees in an instant this yeah. woman walking. She can instantly see the similarity between these two things uh-huh. and how humorous uh-huh. that is. Yeah. 
and snaps it. Yeah. And I mean, how much time do you have I don't. to see that? She'd recognize very quick, that very quick. Snap the picture. Yeah. Super quick. Right. And she would see somebody with just like a, they're like pondering something or they're thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and she'd snap that picture or she'd get, I mean, it was just milli, milliseconds yeah. in time Very that she was able so. to capture. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I don't know if she was like maybe on the autism spectrum. Maybe. And so she was just a little bit removed. Maybe, maybe. Than all of us are. And so she's able to see those things and maybe. needed to capture them or... She was, yeah. Who knows? And anyway, yeah. Well, and then the the, um, the people that she, the kids that she nannied for would say that she would just drag them around to take pictures. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, they would have to go through, like, bad parts of town or, and she'd, you know, stop and basically would not be watching them for a moment so that she could grab a picture. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of their lives was... Or the activities that she did with them. It sounds like they were, it was very adventurous for them. I think she sounded like a great nanny. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, some of the kids really love their memories of her. But they are like, we knew nothing about her. Yeah. Anyway, so the uh, Finding Vivian Meyer, that's John Maloof, he bought, he has 90% of the work now. And that was very much of a, who was this woman? Why was she like this? Mm-hmm. How great her work was, and just how crazy was it that nobody knew her? And sort of like what a tragedy mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that is. Like to me, it sort of came out. It came across as like, this is a tragedy. She should have been known. Yeah, she should be known. Yeah. And then the BBC documentary that came out the same year was a little bit drier. It was a little more factual. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. I didn't get a real message off of it, did right. you? No. No. It's like, this is her. This yeah. is her story. Yeah. What we know. Right. I wouldn't have walked away from it without just, like, thinking about her so yeah. much. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the first one I was... I was... It's one of those movies that just leaves you in a daze yeah. for a while. You're just like, gosh. I kind of became a little obsessed with her yeah. after watching yeah, that well, first yeah. one. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's what happens. You just, like, you're just can't believe people are so interesting yeah fascinating yeah and again she doesn't seem like a real person yeah so there's a little bit of controversy about not who well who owns the rights to the photography you could tell uh that the the bbc documentary they made a point of saying that the guy who was making the other documentary wouldn't participate Mm -hmm. because he was making his own I mean, you you could kind of tell that that some people in the in that world are intimating that he is um, sort of taking advantage of, mm. like he's profiting off of something that he didn't really have anything to do with. He just happened to buy some mm. some photos, and I don't know necessarily what they would want to do or or what they would do differently. I mean, I guess if they all ended up with a museum. Then there would be, it would all be... I, yeah, I don't, I didn't get any of that. I mean... You didn't get that vibe? Not, maybe a little bit, but I just don't see, I don't think he did anything wrong. I don't either. Documentary or the only thing, and they all sort of talk about this is like, I think they all sort of struggled with, well, it was clear this woman didn't 
publish this stuff or try to get it published or have anyone look at it, is it okay for us to be doing this? Right. Would she want this? Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. It's such a gift. Well, (laughs) it's amazing that we get to see them. It all could have been completely destroyed and thrown out. What do you think she would think? She'd be pissed, don't you think? Well, I I think she's happy she's... If... (laughs) I think she's... I'm talking as if she's actually thinking about this, but I think she would be happy that she's not alive during the time yeah, 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 yeah. that Maybe this is okay happening. It, but yeah. I get the sense from watching these two documentaries and reading about her that she would be proud of her work. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, I would think that, yeah. And, and, but that she would also be like, well, of course it's good. Yeah. I sent you an article written by Rose Lichtermark entitled Vivian Meyer and the Problem of Difficult Women. And it was in the New York Times, I believe. And it was so fascinating because she, it was, she saw Finding Vivian Meyer and she pointed out that the film really gave her sort of like a dark edge. And as it says here, kind of she cast her kind of tragically. Mm-hmm. And... It says, Finding Vivian Meyer shows that stories of difficult women can be unflattering even when they are told in praise. The unconventional choices of women are explained in the language of mental illness, Mm. trauma, or sexual repression Hmm. as symptoms of pathology rather than as an active response to structural challenges or mere preference. Hmm. And she goes on later on in the article to say, Vivian Meyer challenges our ideas of how a person, an artist, and especially a woman should be. She didn't try to use her work to accumulate cultural or economic capital. She was poor but uninterested in money. Um, she didn't marry or have children. And when people mistakenly called her Mrs. Meyer, she would say, Miss Meyer, and I'm proud of it. She died before developing more than a thousand rolls of exposed film, and there's no proof that she made a concerted effort to show her work to any dealers or other artists. To suggest that her choices were the result of some as-yet-uncovered emotional trauma is to assume that her life was lived in reaction to pain. But this shoehorns her into the very conventions of capitalism and bourgeois values that she, you know, dismissed. And she says, Some tellings of Meyer's story suggest that perhaps we should feel a proxy regret we should feel sorry about her solitude, her rages, her dark edges, her, I can't say this word, impecunious existence. (laughs) Shall we make her a martyr, or can we allow that she may have had the life she wanted? I like that. Isn't that great? Yeah. Well, now I feel like, why were we even saying maybe she was mentally, like, why? Right. Maybe she's mentally ill. Maybe she was abused when she was Maybe a child. She, yeah, Maybe, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Just jump to that. Isn't that funny? Maybe yeah. that's just who she was. Yeah. Weird. And she liked it. Weird that we would do that. So that's this article by Rose uh, Lectermark, I think is. If you watch the documentaries, you should absolutely read this article. Hmm. Okay. All right. So that's that. I was going to show you something. Oh, during the podcast? Yes! 
damn it. I wanted to show it to you. God damn it. I was in, my stomach hurt. I was laughing so hard. And I was never been quite so uncomfortable in my life. <laughs> so what are you looking at there? Licky brush. Uh-huh. It's something you put, it's not real. It's not something you can actually buy, is it? They're doing a Kickstarter for it. Okay, so you put it in your mouth. It looks like a pacifier. And it has a big tongue with bristles on it that you lick your cat with. Yeah. And it's just not okay. <laughs> I was going to show that to you. I mean, I would like to lick my cat, but I would, I that would not give me the sensation of licking bear. Like, I would have to put, it like, a condom on my tongue, and then I could lick him. And that wouldn't feel like licking a cat at all. <laughs> oh, my God. I got excited before I watched it, and I was like, yes, because I do want to lick bear, but I know I can't do it. Well, the condom would have to have, would have to have, like, a cat tongue texture to it. Whatever feels good for him and protects me. Thanks for listening to episode one of Beagle and Pants. And you can, uh, we've got like an email address and a Twitter account, which I can't remember right now. I think on Twitter it's Beagle Pants, and the email address is beagleandpants at gmail.com. So, alrighty. Thank you. Um, I think it might. Are you sure you're not wearing perfume? I think it's my sandwich. <laughs>